0: Make me Aline Brown is a reporter with The Intercept, and she focuses on environmental justice issues. She has a story out right now, a pretty groundbreaking story on pipeline protectors, which uh, we all know these water protectors most likely from, uh, from the Standing Rock uh, protests that happened a few years ago in 2016. Well, they have been facing off in different locations on a Minnesota pipeline in particular with an oil company that has been policing uh, the location, something that's not new, but luckily people are reporting on it more extensively. So Aline, um, first off, how common is this? We're seeing these stories now and they're horrifying, but how common has it been in the past?
1: Yeah, so I would say um, pipeline companies and fossil fuel companies uh, partnering with law enforcement is, um, a pattern that's been around for a while. And, um, it's one that I've been reporting on since Standing Rock. was certainly present there, the, um, security team, the security company hired by the company behind the Dakota Access Pipeline energy transfer, um, you know, was communicating regularly with law enforcement in North Dakota, sharing, um, intelligence information about what was happening. Um, you know, but there's also been kind of creative strategies like this across the U.S. So in, um, Oregon, for example, there was this big, um, liquid natural gas export, uh, facility that was planned. It's now on hold. And as part of that project, um, the, the company, Campina I believe it is, um, was basically sponsoring an entire new um, sheriff's office unit. Um, and it was already operating before um, this project was even built. Um, in Pennsylvania, another energy transfer pipeline, um, I think it, it was the Mariner East, either one or two, uh, there were constables, elected constables. Um being paid to uh, do security for the pipeline, Um, and or they were accused of of doing so. I'm not sure exactly where that case stands now. Um, And uh, yeah, so I think there are plenty of other examples across you. There's also um, a really routine practice of using off-duty cops to provide security for pipelines and fossil fuel companies. So this uh, public-private partnership around security um, is is quite common, um, but I think intensifying.
0: And simultaneously, I mean, I remember with Standing Rock, there were uh, law enforcement officials, or not law, security officials, who had been operatives and, you know in it, it with, with what was Eric Prince's operation right if whatever the latest yeah latest so it wasn't was.
1: Eric Prince's operation but it was one like it um, okay. So the security company Tiger Swan grew out of um, it, it was kind of the the company um, dreamed up by an ex Delta Forces special sports special Forces uh, commander James Reese. Um, so he started this kind of mercenary security company. They were doing security in Afghanistan. Um, and then I guess saw an opportunity, um, with what was happening at Standing Rock to kind of bring some of the strategies they had learned, uh, in the U.S. military, um, to the U.S. Um, so yeah, a lot of strategies that they, um, that evolved during the Iraq and Afghanistan wars um, were kind of uh, deployed at Standing Rock.
0: Well, and it's so, I mean, I, I was at Standing Rock. Um, I don't understand why they would have to have counterinsurgency strategies when there were peaceful water protectors in the water, nonviolent, no weapons. Uh, it, it's, it's mind boggling to me. Um, do what, is there any sense? And, and I know your story is is not based on Standing Rock, but is there any sense as to whether or not that was premeditated? I mean, at what point did Tiger Swan come in and say, all right, you've got a problem on your hands. Uh, you know, we have a strategy like this is how you're going to stop this camp. I mean, it's just, it was just a camp, as as you know, and many others know.
1: Yeah. So Tiger Swan came in, my understanding is that Tiger Swan came in after um, this like infamous dog attack situation, um, which also involved private security. So this was, you know, a group of water protectors, indigenous water protectors went to um, a space where Enbridge wanted, or not Enbridge, this was energy transfer, wanted to start building its pipeline. Uh, They were going there to pray. Um, They're, there were believed to be some sacred sites there and, um, and maybe even graves. I'm not sure. Um, but definitely sacred sites. And, uh, so they went to the location and found that construction was underway. Um, uh, security was there with dogs and, um, you know, kind of stick them on these water protectors captured on film and really kind of injected a lot of, energy into the movement um, and brought a lot of people out to Standing Rock. Um, I think probably the company didn't like this look, and so they brought in Tiger Swan. in the aftermath of that to kind of oversee these various security companies that were already operating there um, and to also, you know, send their own operatives on the ground. Okay, Uh, so,
0: so let's flash forward to Minnesota. I mean, we've seen more and more folks, um, indigenous and otherwise um, environmental activists, fight these pipelines um, and, and, and any other sort of expansion of, of energy services, whether it's you've, as you've described already. So how have things shifted in terms of, of operations in a place like Minnesota right now?
1: Yeah, so I think that everyone was very wary of what had happened. Um, Standing Rock, uh, it was clear that law enforcement really wanted to avoid another Standing Rock. Um, I think water protectors also learned from Standing Rock. A lot of the people that were that are involved with Fighting and Ridgeline Line 3 were also involved um, at Standing Rock. Um, so everybody's kind of looking at this big movement that just happened next door um, and, and looking for, for lessons to take with them. So one of the key lessons that law enforcement, um, kind of took forward was that they didn't want to, or I guess the state of Minnesota was that they didn't want to spend a lot of money on this project, uh, or on kind of policing this project. Uh, I think North Dakota was, was ended up with a bill around $38 million. Uh, energy transfer ended up actually paying a lot of that after the fact. But, um, you know, it was huge expenses for these uh, public agencies and that was kind of top of the mind of um, local sheriff's offices in Minnesota. Um, You know, already this idea of uh, a pipeline company paying for policing as it's happening was kind of been put on the table. in South Dakota um there was a bill, I think it was passed ultimately, um, that would have created something similar for Keystone XL, uh, where um in that case Trans-Canada would have paid um would have paid South Dakota for um policing. Um so yeah, Minnesota took this idea and it was put into the public utilities commission agreement. Um, that um, was kind of foundational for Enbridge to get permission to operate. Um, and so this, yeah, so this is this account um, where Enbridge puts in money and uh local law enforcement and other public agencies are refunded for pipeline related work uh, is kind of foundational to understanding the, the public-private partnership that's happening. Um yeah, it's an escrow account. Um it's pretty unlimited from what I understand. And uh, sheriff's offices in particular are submitting invoices, a public official is reviewing them, and then Enbridge is paying them back. Um There's also money in that account that is going to efforts to combat human trafficking, um, which is kind of an acknowledgement of this issue, the connection between the fossil fuel industry and um, issues like missing and murdered indigenous women. Um, you know, uh, a lot of people working on um, issues around human, human trafficking in Minnesota are like, hey, if you bring in, you know, hundreds or thousands of temporary workers from out of state, you know, problems like um, human trafficking, um, drug trafficking, they're just kind of naturally going to come with that. Um, So that, uh, so Minnesota acknowledged that as well. And that's part of that account.
0: It's interesting because you mentioned that these jobs are coming from out of state. You know, Mm -hmm. when you hear the pitches for a lot of these types of jobs whether it's fracking or or any you know oil production or drilling or building a pipeline it's you know especially if it's if it's a public private partnership you know they sell the bill of goods to government as being it's going to bring you jobs it's going to bring you jobs but you're saying that these are out-of-state jobs
1: yeah there's tons of people that have come in from out-of-state i mean they are also and i would i would kind of actually think of they they have also made a big effort to hire um, indigenous workers, in particular from Minnesota. Interesting, um, and and this is actually part of what I would consider, um, or what I think researchers and experts in in corporate counterinsurgency would consider part of that strategy is um, you know really creating uh, quote unquote benefits for the local community, partnering with. People that you, they might have otherwise considered, considered potential, uh, project opponents. And, you know, by hiring lots of native workers, they can say, hey, what, you know, forget about these three tribes that are kind of leading the legal challenges against this project. Look at all these workers we've hired. Look at these, um, native contractors that we have, um, working. Uh, We're, we're doing good work for indigenous communities.
0: So um, let's talk about the ramifications of this pipeline. Uh, What are water protectors? I mean, the water protectors, but what are, what are the ramifications of building this pipeline? And, you know, did, was there any, does it go through indigenous land or is it surrounding? Like, how does, how does it affect uh, the lives of these people?
1: Yeah. So um, the project, I mean, there's a few grounds on which people are concerned. I mean, one kind of big picture is the issue of the climate crisis. Um, this pipeline is a tar sands oil pipeline. So it uh, brings uh, tar sands oil from Alberta, Canada, um, to this transport hub in Wisconsin. The biggest U.S. portion goes through Minnesota. And it's actually, there is an existing Line 3 pipeline, but this project of doubles that old corroded line's uh, capacity and actually reroutes it um, through new uh, territories. Um, and so tar sands oil is one of the most carbon intensive fossil fuels that exists. Um, and in a moment when the climate crisis is just very visible, very like rapidly changing, um our homes and communities um in really dangerous ways um you know a lot of scientists have said we just can't there's not room for more um fossil fuel industry expansion especially of a fossil fuel like this um you know tar sands soil of, of all things um is one that we just obviously shouldn't be burning more of um and processing more of um, so there's the climate issue. Um there's also uh the issue of the ter- the treaty territory that the pipeline goes through. Um it travels through a big chunk of Minnesota um that isn't necessarily reservation land, but it it's treaty land and so um Ojibwe bands in Minnesota have rights to hunt, gather and I believe travel um in this big chunk of land that the pipeline goes through. Um, you know, there are a lot of wild rice lakes. That's a really sacred food for um, Ojibwe and Anishinaabe people. Um, and uh, some of the tribes are saying that they were not properly consulted um, about this pipeline traveling through their territory and have concerns about it, um, you know, damaging... Um, the land that is central to um, their identities um, and ways of life. Um, so related to that, uh, there's a lot of concern around spills, um, pipelines just spill. It, ha- I mean, Enbridge has a particularly terrible record. Um, they're responsible for this for two of the like largest um, oil spills. That have occurred in the U.S. Um, one was in the Kalamazoo River um, in Michigan, just really nasty tar sands oil, like sinking to the bottom, really hard to clean up. Um, and I think actually the largest inland oil spill in the U.S. was in um, Grand Rapids, Minnesota, or somewhere thereabouts. Um, and I believe it—it was—it was definitely an Enbridge pipeline. It might have even been the Line Three pipeline, um, but it you know, it was this massive spill that didn't really get a lot of coverage when it occurred and, um, you know, is high on the minds of the people there. Um, and then kind of the third thing that can happen, which a uh, water protector is already happening is, um, the spills that can occur as, um, the pipeline is being constructed. Um, a lot of times... This like drilling mud that's used to to put the pipeline under rivers um, ends up like seeping up and into waterways um, It contains a lot of clay and a lot of like sediment that clouds the water and can be harmful to aquatic habitats and it just happens a lot like energy transfers um and Tocos I think it was the again the mariner east pipelines in Pennsylvania just had repeated um, spills like this and um, they don't always get as much attention. But um, yeah, there was a report that um, this had occurred on one of the rivers in Minnesota actually over the last couple of weeks.
0: Um, is there, it, it just seems to me that at this point, right, when there has been so much attention, and 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 many of these spills are happening in states that may not be solely Republican uh, led, like North Dakota was with Standing Rock, what is the the, the local uh, political situation in these states? And 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 I and I know you mentioned that like there isn't a lot of reporting on this too. I mean, I remember Standing Rock; there were reporters that were basically being influenced by local lawmakers to not report on Standing Rock or only report on it from their perspective, the the local press, it was, it was appalling. I mean, not like it's a surprise that local press is not as strong as it once was, but, um, you know, how do those things work together right now in Minnesota?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, Minnesota has a democratic governor. Um, yeah, like a lot of rural, rural areas and blue states, um, the local politics might be a little different. Um, I'm not sure how the counties that the, the pipeline passes through voted, um, but, um, even I think people, you know, the governor has not, um, stood out against this pipeline. Um, yeah, uh, I think that there's been a lot of pressure on Governor Waltz to, um, to make moves, but he, I, I think at this point, all the pressure is on the Biden administration rather than the governor, um, because water protectors have lost hope in him. Um yeah and you know even hyper local democratic pol- politics uh in the in the piece i um interviewed this guy Bob Markham who's really active in the democratic party um in around Aiken County where the pipeline passes through um and you know it was interesting cuz this is a guy that at a certain point had spoken out against the project um During a public utilities commission hearing, kind of saying that tribes weren't being properly consulted. Um, but, uh, you know, Enbridge has planned for this. So they, um, so they actually, uh, put a line three project manager on the board of this Long Lake Conservation Center, kind of a local, um, education center where you go to do environmental learning. Um, so this guy, this Enbridge pipeline boss is on this conservation center's foundation board. Um, this local kind of democratic leader, um, joined the board. I think actually after, um, Paul, the Enbridge guy, um, was already there. And, um, by the time I spoke to him, he really was hesitant to speak out against Enbridge and, I don't really think that this was about the money that Enbridge was providing to the conservation center. Although there was money um, via grants and donations, at least like forty thousand dollars, which is like a pretty small portion of the conservation center's budget. So there was money being passed around, but I think that Enbridge also did a great job of like kind of mastering the art of Minnesota nice. So um, this guy Bob was like, you know, Paul, he takes his kids out to the Boundary Waters, this wilderness area in Minnesota. You know, he really cares about his kids' future. He cares about the environment. Like, Paul's a good guy. He's my friend. And, you know, I think it's more complicated than, uh, you know, than some people think. So I think, again, this is part of this really holistic (laughs) approach that the company has taken. I mean, and that's
0: exactly a a perfect example of just how sophisticated and and simple. Also, you know, Mm -hmm. politics works. It's like, well, he's my friend. I'm not going to, you know, do what's right because now he's my friend. Yeah. Uh Okay. Right. (laughs) Okay. So, so let's talk about the Biden administration, um, where this has been a week where the Biden administration has, uh, discussed their environmental agenda. Um, where does this fit in all that?
1: Yeah, so, I mean, Biden has been really quiet on Enbridge Line 3, except for the kind of like legal filings. Um, so, you know, we know he intervened to halt the Keystone XL pipeline. That was a huge deal, a big win. Um, he has not intervened to... Um, his administration has not intervened to stop uh, the Dakota Access Pipeline. And they also have not intervened on average line three. Um, I think like the permitting. My understanding is that maybe it's a little bit more compl- complicated than KXL was in terms of like his administration, his administration's intervention. But he definitely like could make moves to halt this thing. Um,
0: and just to remind folks, I mean. Uh, Keystone XL was halted under Obama. So there's a little cover there in that, you know, this was reversing back to a previous Obama decision, whereas these other two are not.
1: Right, 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 exactly. Um, And so, you know, up until this point, you know, we know that he's been in contact with water protectors or his administration has. um, So that's certainly a shift from like the Trump administration. But um, over the, in a couple weeks ago, Uh, The administration submitted a filing in this lawsuit um, that a couple tribes as well as I think a couple environmental organizations have filed to um, attempt to halt the pipeline. Um, And basically, um, yeah, his administration argued that this um, case should be dismissed, that um, the permit should be, uh, the federal permit should be upheld. Um, you know, he's not doing a press conference about it, but I think that speaks volumes. Well,
0: I, it just seems like his environmental policy is all over the place to me, like it conflicts with each other mm-hmm. and then I I mean maybe I'm not reading into it as as detailed as maybe others are, but um how does Depp Holland fit into all this? Has she given any the interior secretary? Of course, she was a water protector herself. Um, she went to Standing Rock. Is she has she made any statement standing with her indigenous brothers and sisters in Minnesota or any is there has there been pressure put on her to pressure Biden?
1: Yeah, honestly, I'm not sure if she said anything, but there's definitely been invitations um, for her to come to Minnesota and join the Water Protectors there. Um, yeah, I don't know that she said anything, but I could be wrong, um, and. I believe the permit in question is an Army Corps permit. So I'm not sure where the Interior Department would fit in, but certainly she is a highly influential figure. And perhaps if she was like shouting on the rooftops about this, things could to chip. I don't know. Um, but yeah, I don't, I'm not aware of comments that she's made, although she might have.
0: Okay. So the big question I have is, do we need this? Do we actually, I mean, this is the argument that the Obama administration, oh, we're transitioning, it's too difficult, we're still relying on on oil and gas, and we want to be independent from oil and gas, you know, foreign um, oil and gas in the Mideast. Do
1: we actually need it? I mean, just no. Like, I'm sure that the tar sands bosses in Alberta, Canada need it. Like, you know, pipelines make their product cheaper, and you really need Like you need cheaper transport to make all this like processing for this nasty sludge to um, like work as a fuel uh, that's expensive. So, you know, pipeline companies, oil oil producers in Alberta specifically, they might need it. But like as humans, like do we need is this particular like line of fuel essential for us to to function like definitely not like no and if anything there's like this country this world is on fire literally um it's really hot right now um there's these terrible storm like it's just a really bad idea
0: ocean is exploding um yeah
1: right yeah
0: yeah well um Aline, this is fascinating work i would be depressed every single day of the week if i was in your line mm, of yeah, <laughs> i mean i am depressed for other right, reasons right, but, funny. um thank you for continuing my cycle of yeah, depression and everybody else's cycle of depression because we just need to know we need to have therapy to right. this way your reporting is our therapy <laughs>
1: <see what>
0: <laughs> no but seriously thank you so much um everybody go check out our piece we'll put it up on the screen we'll put the link down below I uh, really appreciate you coming on and let us know if you have any other breaking, horrifying disaster news that we should be covering. Sure.
1: Thanks so much <laughs> for having me. All right, thank you.